just checking. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? What about now? And looking for the power and the authority that comes through the speakers. There it is. It's wonderful to see we're all having a good chat. It's a very important part of being together. And uh, if you could find your way to a seat, that'd be great. We're going we're to get going. Otherwise, I'm going to run out of lots of time and then I'm going to skip our things and, you know, Hopefully that'll be a bad thing because what I've got is good. Let's see. All right. So good morning again. Welcome to everyone. We are wrapping up a series that we have been doing over the last two weeks called It All Adds Up. And uh, this morning I'm going to speak about the secret to financial security, which you might think is a rather strange thing to say in a church. All right. I, I promise it'll make sense if you bear with me to the end. It is a secret, but like the mystery of the gospel, John, it is now a secret that has been revealed, right? So the thing is, there's financial advice everywhere today. I don't know if you have looked on the internet. It's full of advice on how to get rich quickly. You can buy all kinds of exciting books that people have written. Some of their advice is good, some of it not so much, because anyone with an opinion can write things on the internet, right? And I know that there, right now there are some of you guys who are at YWAM, and, and one of the questions that you're wrestling with is, what am I going to do when I finish being here at YWAM? Right? Am I, am I going to study further? Am I going to stay at YWAM? Am I going to be on staff? Am I going to go into ministry for the rest of my life or the like, foreseeable future? Or is there a career, some other career that I'm going to pursue? These are questions that I'm sure you're wondering. I know some of the others of you here, you're studying at Ames right now and and about to finish up. And one of the big questions you're wrestling with is, okay, so how am I going to get a job? Where am I going to be employed now that I've finished studying? Who's going to employ me? How much am I going to get paid? And the guys a step ahead of you, they're thinking, okay, well, how am I going to buy a house? Or how am I going to pay for my kids and their future? How am I going to pay perhaps for my wedding and the labola that I need to pay for my wife? Right? Things I managed to avoid. Good job, love. <laughs> that was a large blessing. How am I going to make sure I've got enough money to retire on? See, all of us wrestle with this thing of financial security, and it's a reality of the world that we live in today. More than that, though, we also live in a world that loves to shape and nurture and cultivate our desires. I don't know if you've realized that or see that constantly. Right? We have this advertising industry that is out there that loves to, to help you understand what you want. Right? You may not realize that yet. There was a movie that came out about 10 years ago now called The Joneses. I don't know if anyone saw it. I made the mistake of showing the trailer at the 8 o'clock service last week. Um, it was a, we won't show it here. Let's just say that. We don't want to keep up with the Joneses. But this movie, what was really interesting about this movie is that uh, a fake family, right? So you've got four marketing people posing as a family, husband, wife, son, daughter. They move into a neighborhood and they live the perfect life. They've got the perfect home. They've got all the right stuff. They are friendly and popular and wonderful. And here's the plan. As they make friends with people in the community, everyone sees their life and wants what they have. Right? Don't you, don't you think that that's a fairly apt description of how we operate as human beings? How often do we buy things on recommendations from others, or we see something that someone else has, and we think, sure, I actually really need that in my life? Because advertising is so pervasive in the world around us, it's not good enough just to eat food, 
right? We used to be able to just eat food. Now you must have the best food. You must make sure that it is organically grown and, you know, it is pesticide-free and all kinds of other goodness. And it's not just any starch, but it's the good starch and sugar is death and fat is death. And we, you know, all these different things that we've got to be aware of, make sure you buy this brand because it's much better. Do you want to play sports? You know, it's not good enough just to be, have average stuff when you play sports. You, if you play hockey, you need this new five and a half thousand rand hockey stick because this hockey stick will make you a better player, <laughs> right? We've got to have the best gear. How about cell phones? Man, our world loves cell phones. Every year, they bring out a new phone that is exactly the same as the last phone, but it's got one more feature that you don't need. You literally don't need it, but they make you think that you do, right? What about the parents around here? You guys have got kids? Right? How much do you want your kids to go to the best schools? You know, and, and to have the best opportunities in life. And actually, you know, if they're going to fit in with their friends, it's kind of important that they also have some of the best stuff. Because if they don't have a PS4, then they can't play online with their other friends who have a PS4. And their PS2 is just not going to connect at the same level. What about, what about the way in which we look? Because, you know, did you know you're actually not good enough as a human being as you are? You actually need a little bit of help. You need to buy these makeup products in order for you to actually look pretty. I don't know if you knew that, by the way. Right? You need to also shop at these stores and buy these clothes because without these clothes, you're not going to be cool. You need to go to this gym and do this fitness program because otherwise you're not going to be in shape. And then you also need to get onto this fad diet because this is really going to make you a better person. That's what our world sells us. I go shop at Checkers and I stand in the express till quite often and there's a whole bank of magazines and every magazine's cover is trying to sell you a better version of you or a better version of your home or the food that you eat. No matter where you sit on the spectrum of wealth, whether you have very little or whether you have a lot, there's always something better that you could have. Right? And there's always pressure to get there. There's always pressure to get there. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to his disciples, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is not a statement of, of what might happen. This is a statement of fact. Jesus is saying this is a true thing, right? This is, you can evaluate your heart by looking at where you've accumulated treasure. That's what he's saying. Either you've accumulated treasure here on earth or you've accumulated it in heaven, but where you've accumulated treasure, that tells me about your heart. It's quite a serious statement. I, I tell you, uh, like, to be very honest, preparing this message was very challenging because I think there's a pervasive thing in our culture, especially in our that sort of affluence, upper middle class culture, that it, it's very, very difficult to, to engage with some of the things Jesus says. Right. Let me read you something that Richard Foster wrote almost 40 years ago, 39 years ago, when he first wrote Celebration of Discipline. He wrote this. This is, I think, even more true today. 40 years ago, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we don't really like. We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes and to drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. And then he says this, It is time to awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick culture 
is to be sick. That really hit me. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirits within ourselves. He brings into stark contrast that which we find really hard to see, which we don't like to look at in ourselves very often at all. There is a battle that is going on for our hearts. And sometimes, I think, to be honest, we don't really want to see this battle. Because if we can ignore it, we can pretend it's not there. And we can carry on indulging maybe someone that's not Jesus. The thing is, the Scriptures are not silent on this issue of money and wealth. In fact, Jesus spoke about it quite frequently. The Scriptures speak about finances quite frequently. I want to read you just a couple of Scriptures, give you an overall picture of some of the things. Maybe not overall, but a snapshot of some of the things the Scripture has to say about money. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is addressing a crowd, and there's a brother in the crowd who's trying to get an inheritance. And his brother is denying him portions of that inheritance. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. Seems like a reasonable request. Jesus said to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Yo, switch the game on him. Didn't expect that. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, Solomon, King Solomon is now giving out some wisdom from his personal life experience as a man who accumulated a lot of wealth. He says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Hebrews 13, verse 5, the author writes to the church and he says to them, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. Here are some words from Jesus to the church at Laodicea. Revelation 3 verse 17. These are some serious words. And he starts by quoting them because they say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. Jesus says, you don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says that to a church. Like... Sometimes it scares me to ask Jesus what he might say about us as a church. I hope it's not that, but I'm sure they hoped it wasn't that either. Matthew 13, 22. Remember the parable of the sower? Jesus tells a story. There's this guy, and he goes out, and he throws some seed around, and it grows well in different places, and no one understands what he said. So his disciples are like, Jesus, what's up with the guy throwing the seed? Jesus begins to explain to him what he's talking about. He says this in verse 22. He says, the seed that falls among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word of God, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and they make it unfruitful. Money is not inherently evil, but it is deceitful. And it reduces, it chokes the power of God's word and God's truth in our lives. You need to be careful. 1 Timothy 6 From 9 to 10, Paul is writing to his mentee, this guy that he's been raising up in the faith. He's helping him as he's pastoring a group of people in Ephesus. And he says this, Timothy, you need to to tell people this. You need to watch out for this because people who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's just a snapshot of some of the things Scripture has to say. It, it, it has a lot to say about our money and how we need to be careful about what God has given us. Perhaps one of the statements that is the clearest for me in, in all of this is, is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells his disciples and those others who may be listening, he says, guys, you need to know that no one can be the slave of two masters. That's not possible. This is Matthew 6, I think it's verse 24. No one can be the slave of two masters because you will either hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You remember who the two masters were? God and money. Not God and Satan. God and money. In each and every one of us, there is a battle for the devotion of our souls. And on one side, there is Jesus who's calling us to follow him and to love him and to give our lives for him. And on the other side is the spirit of greed. And the love of money, that's it. You need more stuff. It's, it's right for you to have these things. Just as Jesus desires to have us, so the enemy, through the spirits of greed and the love of money, desires to have our hearts and our souls as well. And a question that we really need to wrestle with is, is in all of my life, and particularly with how I spend my money, am I serving the right master? It's a, it's a, deep, it's a deep question. Because I, I believe, I genuinely believe that this battle for our, the loyalty of our hearts is the reason for our financial anxiety. Right? Let me explain that a little bit. Because behind all the practical things, and there are practical things like how much we earn, how much we spend, how much we save, and where we spend and where we save, those are important practical considerations. At the heart of all of these things is this question, who is our money serving? At the end of the day, who is our money serving? It's the battle for the devotion of our hearts that, that leads to financial insecurity. And, and I believe if we're going to find the route to real, genuine financial security, it doesn't lie in having the right investment strategy. It lies in learning the secrets of biblical contentment. That's really what we're going to be speaking about this morning. That's what Paul has to say. And... Uh, I think that's the very real answer to the challenge of financial insecurity. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at what Paul has to say about this in Philippians chapter 4 from verses 10 to 13. So let's read that together this morning. Paul writes this in Philippians 4 verse 10. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, I knew that you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I need you to know that I'm not saying this because I'm in need at the moment, because I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. In fact, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I'm living with plenty or I'm living in want. I can do all of this through Him who gives me strength. It's a passage we're going to look at a little bit this morning. And uh, just to give you a bit of background, this passage um, it starts with a relationship that Paul has with the Philippian church, right? And you might remember last week, John spoke about the Macedonian churches, if you were here, and how they had partnered with Paul in the gospel. And even out of their poverty, how they had sponsored him and given him financial contributions to be able to continue the work that they had been doing. And this was the relationship that Paul had with them as a church. They would support him financially, and he was like a father to them in the faith and led them in the way of God. And his letter to them that we're reading now is primarily designed to say thank you to them for the support that they had given him over the years. 
And so at the time of writing, how interesting is this? Paul is actually in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, right? But he's received a visit from a guy called Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus has brought a financial gift from the Philippian church to Paul, which is why he says, I want to thank you for renewing your concern to me. And he says, I know in your heart, you never stop being concerned. You never stop wanting to be able to support me. But unfortunately, there wasn't an EFT that they could just do quickly and hook him up. So someone actually had to get to wherever he was. And he'd been in prison for a while. And it's been a real challenge for him. And so now Epaphroditus has physically been able to arrive and to help him out. That's the background to what's been happening. And then, then he gets into the heart of it. He says, I want you to know that I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And I mean, that's going to strike you as just a little bit weird when you recognize where he's standing at the moment. You know, he's writing the letter in prison, in a house that he can't leave, in a marketplace that he can't get to, where he can't buy food, where he can't go outside and make his tents and sell them because he's not allowed to physically leave his house. He actually, he kind of seems to be in need a little bit, but Paul says, I'm not in need at the moment because this, I have learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I've learned this thing called contentment that no matter where I find myself, no matter where I go, I know, and I know what it is, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, which he means I know how to live in both extremes. Paul, Paul has been a guy that slept on the streets, that didn't have food to eat, literally no food. It wasn't that like he only had bread. No, he had no food. There was nothing to eat. There was nothing to drink. There was nowhere to sleep. There were no clothes to wear. But at the same time, he says, I know what it is to be a guy that has more food than I could possibly eat and more clothes than I can really wear and more rooms than I could actively sleep in at one time. I know what it is to be in both of those spaces. And across both of those spaces, I've learned the secret that transcends them, this thing of being content in any and every situation. I've learned the secret of being content. So what is the secret that Paul is speaking about and how do we get to learn to live with it? in our lives. That's, that's the heart of what we want to talk about this morning. And this idea of contentment is not a new idea or an old idea. It's an idea that is kind of followed through with the developments of humanity. And so I'm going to speak a little bit to start with contemporary contentment. And I see my pretty smart art is not showing on the PowerPoint, which I'm sorry about. All right, it's a lot prettier on my tablets. Right, but contemporary contentment has existed for a long time. It started way back when Paul was writing. There was a group of people called the Stoic philosophers, and they lived in ancient Greece. And for them, contentment was one of the key aims of man. Your goal in life was to learn to be content, to be at peace with who you were and your space in the great wheel of time. And today, if you go into the New Age movement or into Buddhism, you'll see there's a lot of writing today about also learning to be content. And when, when we read... We speak about contentment in a contemporary way. I think it, um, and I'm not an expert on this, but in the reading that I've done, it kind of, I think you can boil it down to these five things. Contentment is about an inward focus. It's about understanding who you are and being okay with who you are and how you're made and the personality that you have and your, the physique that you have. It's learning to be okay in who you are. Right? Then it's learning to increase the gratitude that you express in your life. So learn to be thankful for the small things. In fact, if your life is so terrible, they would say, just be thankful that you're alive. That's a starting point, that you can breathe. And then you can go out, well, maybe you've got some family that still love you. Or maybe if you don't have family, you've got some friends that still love you. Or maybe you've got some food today that you were able to eat. Learn to be content, I mean, be grateful for the small things. 
Thirdly, you've got to learn to decrease the desires that you have for, the thing, for things beyond you. If you lower your expectations, you'll be more a- easily able to meet them, then you'll be happier. Right? It's, it's kind of simple maths. Right? But the higher your expectations are, if you expect to have a mansion one day in uh, you know, California, it's going to be very difficult for you to be happy because you're not going to get there unless you're like part of 0.25% of the world. You know? Whereas if you decrease your expectations, that's going to be possible. Learn to decrease the negativity that you express in your life because it's very easy to be negative about things and to be focused on the things that make you sad. Instead, focus on the things that, you ha- that have been a blessing to you and your life will generally begin to be a bit better. Finally, aesthetic minimalism means decreasing the amount of stuff that you have in your life. Buy less stuff. Get rid of your old stuff. Create less emotional clutter and spaces for people to dump their emotional problems on you. Clean up a bit of your space, and you'll begin to feel more content. So this is the idea of contemporary contentment. And let me say this, it's not bad. This is not terrible. This is not the root to all evil. Actually, if you did all of these things in your life, you probably would feel more content. Your life would, generally speaking, be a little bit better. But this is not what Paul is speaking about when he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. For Paul, there's something fundamentally different about Christian contentment compared to the contentment that we can find in the world. So let's have a look at what Paul is speaking about. When Paul speaks about the contentment that he has found, Christian contentment, it doesn't start with an inward focus. It starts with a God focus. It starts with a God focus. It starts with understanding our place in the cosmic design of God. That at the same time, we are, we are both infinitesimally small in comparison to an infinitely great God. And yet concurrently, we are also integral in His plan. And He deeply desires to be involved in our lives. Right? It's about understanding that He is both far beyond us and everywhere and every, anywhere at the same time. And yet He's also intimately near. He's Emmanuel, God who is with us and who has joined Himself to us as His people. That He is both beyond our comprehension, that we will never understand God, and yet He has also revealed Himself to us by the Spirit, and we're able to know Him truly. That He is the Almighty Creator who spoke and created the heavens and the earth and the galaxies and the multiverses, and at the same time, that He is a loving Father. Paul says, as you begin to recognize where you are in the broad spectrum of God and humanity, you begin to create a lens through which you're able to understand contentment. I think that's the first place that Christian contentment begins. And then, it, then in a similar way to contemporary contentment, we, there's an increase in gratitude that we need to focus on in our lives. But it's not just gratitude for the goodness in our life. It's recognizing that there is a good Father behind that goodness. And it's pouring out our gratitude toward Him. So in verses 4 and 6 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul starts and he says, Um, rejoice always. Let me say it again. I need you to rejoice, friends, because there are reasons to rejoice. Whenever you pray, make sure that you pray with thanksgiving in your heart, being grateful to God for what He has done. Remember, Paul says, the goodness of God. Remember what He has done. Remember, Paul's in prison as he's writing this. He has every reason to be angry and frustrated with God. But he says, when I pray, I rejoice in the Lord because He's good, and I remember that. This is not an idea that's unique to Paul or to the New Testament. This runs all the way through the Scriptures. If you go and read the Old Testament, you'll see God constantly refer to Himself like this. He'll say, I am the God that brought you up out of Egypt. 
Or, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or, I am the God who led you through the wilderness. I am your God who has journeyed with you and shown you my goodness and my faithfulness over time. And I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that because whatever space you're in right now, you're focusing on the space and you're forgetting me. Remember who I am. So the second part of Christian contentment is learning to increase our gratitude for the goodness of God because of what He has given to us. Too often as people, we have this tendency to dwell on the negative. I don't know if you've noticed that. You ever speak to someone, hey, how was your week? Well, you know, it was okay, but X, Y, Z, the next thing, all these things that were really like just hectic and like, and I'm just feeling down. That's quite normal for us. It's easy for us to, to forget the good things that have happened and to focus on the negative. But God's call for us is to actually remember, actively remember the goodness of God that's been a part of your life. And you will begin to find that contentment grows in you. Thirdly, and this is quite significant, and Christian contentment involves a spiritual redirection. Because it's God-focused rather than us-focused, I think there are two key movements, amongst many others, that begin to happen in a person's life as they have begun to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God is at work in us to, to mold us and to shape us to be more like Jesus, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And, he, and there are two things that he begins to do in us, amongst others. Right? One is that we move from a worldview that is very me-centered. That's where we all start. We start in a worldview that's all about me, and it's about doing well in my life and sorting my family out and making sure that I'm good and okay and happy, to a worldview that is about the kingdom. Right? Christian living is a kingdom-centered worldview, and God moves that in us as we work with him. And I think... For me, this is so beautifully summed up by Paul in the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. One of my favorite verses, back when Facebook first started, you had to like put a, a motto on Facebook, right? I don't know if anyone ever did that. Um, but uh, for me, this was my motto because it was something that spoke so profoundly to me. And this, remember, this is something that Paul's writing as he's in jail, as he's reflecting on the fact that his life is currently held in Caesar's hand. Right? That it may end tomorrow when Caesar decides his case or not. There's no higher authority to which he can appeal. And he writes this to the Philippian church. He says, guys, I need you to know that for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is to live for the purpose of the Messiah. God has been at work in my life. He has called me out of darkness. He's brought me into light. And my life is now orientated around His purposes. That's why I exist. In fact, if I wanted to be self-centered, I would actually want to die. Because that would be better for me. And so he, he develops this with the Philippians. He says, you know what? I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about what I'd like to do. And honestly, I would rather go to be with the Lord. Because it, it sucks a little bit being in prison here in Rome. I'd rather be with the Lord. But I recognize that for your benefits... It's better that I stick around because God's still got something for me to do. And my life is not lived for me. It's lived for the kingdom. And so I resolve that I will continue to live as God gives me grace. It's the first redirection that God needs to begin to work in us from a me orientation to a kingdom orientation. The second is similar to it, but our, our definitions of success in life has to begin to change. That we need to go from being success-orientated and financially-orientated and happiness-orientated to being Jesus-orientated. That's what God has called us in our life. Remember Jesus, Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. There's only one goal at the end of this. Because all of us start, we start in a default position. We come out from under the spirit of the world. 
right? The spirit that has authority over the world. And in that place, in the world, all of us desire to be financially successful, to, to make some kind of impact in the world, to, to live a life that's full of pleasure and happiness. That's the morals of our world. If you go read the magazine covers, that's what they will sell you. They will sell you better financial success, better happiness, more money in life. That's what they're out to sell you. But as God works in us, He moves us away from that and says, you know what, success in life is around finding obedience to Jesus. Francis Chan once said something that has stuck with me for a very long time. He says that his deepest heartache in life is seeing people who have have won the wrong race. And they get to the end of their life and they've got everything they could possibly want, but they've won the wrong race. And they haven't been running after Jesus. And, and they're going to get to the finish line, they're going to find there's no reward. There's a redirection that we need to go on in our life around what the parameters of success are. What does a successful life look like? In the kingdom, it looks like a life that's geared towards obedience to Christ. Both of these redirections are things that the Spirit of God does in us. As we invite Him to do that, as we ask Him to do that, and as He's just molding us generally and shaping us into, our, into Christ-likeness. It's the third part of Christian contentment. And finally, I want to say Christian contentment is grounded in the faithfulness of God. Which is why Paul writes in verse 13, he says, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. This has been one of those verses that people have misunderstood horribly. So let me just say, by the way, this doesn't mean that if you know Jesus, you can soma do anything because you can do everything through Christ who gives you strength. That's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean you can fly a plane because you know Jesus. Or you can jump off a building and fly because you know Jesus. Those are not things. It means you can learn to be content in any and every situation. It's because of the faithfulness of God that you are able to be content no matter what situation you're going through. I want us to notice something here. Remember what Paul said a little bit earlier. He said, I've learned the secrets of being content, whether I have abundance or I have significant lack. And there's something, there's something that we need to catch here. Our contentment needs to become unchained from the provision of God, if I can say that. Right? Let me give you an example. Let's say something terrible happens and you lose your job. We trust that that won't happen for any of you. But if it does, and you can't afford something anymore, maybe you can't afford the current repayments on your house or the rent that's due on your house, or you can't afford your varsity fees or your children's varsity fees, you can't afford to continue to um, have two cars at the same time, whatever it might be, you can't afford your DSTV subscription anymore. Our contentment is not dependent on God making back the difference, on restoring the thing that we've lost. Paul says, I've learned to be content when I have nothing. When I have literally nothing, there was actually no food to eat. And let me say that God is fantastic in His provision. And I can tell you stories, and people in this congregation can tell you stories about the provision of God. But our contentment doesn't rest on God providing the things that we want. Paul says, I've learned to be content when I had absolutely nothing to eat. I was shipwrecked. I was floating on the ocean. I was holding onto a piece of driftwood for three days while I waited to, to hit some kind of land. And yet I knew that I was serving God and I was okay. There may be times in our life where the stuff that we have accumulated gets pruned away by God. Can we still be content in those times? Will we remember that our life is not our own, 
that we've actually been bought for a price and that we don't live for ourselves anymore, but we now live to serve Jesus and his kingdom, that we exist for him. Another wonderful piece of scripture that I deeply love is, uh, is from Paul's final letter. It's a letter he writes to Timothy as he knows that his life is coming towards an end. And he writes these words in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, Timothy, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That I know that God has given me this grace to live this life and I have done it for him. And I know that I have stored up for myself treasures in heaven. And when I go to be with Jesus, I know that he has guarded those and he has kept them safe. And I don't need to worry about what's happening now because I know that there's a place where God has been watching over me. When we allow ourselves to become really God-focused, to remember God's goodness towards us, to be directed away from ourselves and towards the love of God, away from the love of money and towards the kingdom of God, when we learn to trust in the faithfulness of God, then we also get to walk in the contentments that God created for us to walk in because it comes out of that deep relationship with Him. It comes out of knowing Him and trusting Him and seeing His goodness in our lives. So let's, let's close by talking about moving towards contentment. And I want to I walk you through a process which some of you might be familiar with. It's called the five R's. It's something we do as a part of living free. I don't want to do this corporately though. I want to invite you to do this at home. Right, so I think this is something so deep. I think our culture in this, on this particular issue is so insidious. It gets so deep into us that I think we would do an injustice to this to try and quickly do a five-minute prayer and sort it out. So I want to invite you. I'm going to lead you through some stuff. I want to invite you to just take this home and just sit with it before the Lord and say, God, is there anything you want me to see in this? Because then I want to process that with you and I want to invite you to lead me out of it. So the first of the five R's is called recognize. We need to recognize that, that contentment is the solution to a problem. It's the solution to a sin problem. And we're going to live in contentment. We need to recognize actually there's somewhere in our life where we have given a part of our heart over to not Jesus, but to the love of money or to greed or to something else. And, and to do that, God might speak to you directly and I'll encourage you to ask him if there's anything you need to see. But I've adapted a couple of guidelines that Richard Foster writes, and I'm just going to, to read them out, and they'll appear on the screen at the end. Uh, not, not this slide yet, Tom, so don't worry about it. Right, they'll appear on the screen at the end, and, and just to help stir some thoughts in you. That's all they really are. Right. Do, you, do you find that you buy things because of their usefulness or because of their, the status that's attached to them? Something to consider. Do you ever find that you buy or embrace things that form addictive habits in you? Do you willingly give things away when you get the opportunity? Or is, it, is that quite a hard thing for you to do? And you hold what you have quite closely. Do you feel like you need new stuff even when the old stuff still works? Do you enjoy things you don't own, or do you, are you able to do that, or do you try and own everything that you want to enjoy so that you can have control over it? And how quickly do you use credits, by which I mean money you don't have? Do you try and save that as a last resort for special purposes, or, or do you use credit maybe a little bit quickly when you don't really need to? Just 
offering those things. If anything sticks with you, you can go with it and, and just ask God to show you if there's anything there. Right? Otherwise, just speak to Him on your own. The second part of the five-hour process, though, is once we've recognized, actually, there's something I might need to deal with with the Lord, then what we need to do is deal with it. And so we have to repent of it, and we recognize it, we turn away from it, which is repentance, and we realign ourselves with the truth of God. That's the third R, repent and realign, right? And so I want to share with you just three scriptures that speak about the alternative path, the truth that God would give us that would realign, reorientate ourselves in any area that He might want to call out of us. 1 Timothy 6, we read verse 10 earlier. I'm going to read 11 and 12 in addition now. All right, remember, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that many have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But as for you, man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Then we read from Matthew 6.24 earlier, the end of that passage where Jesus has been speaking about, don't worry about things. Don't worry about what you need to eat or drink or wear or sleep. Then he says this, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as you do that, God will give you all the things that you need. All of these things will be added to you, he says. Seek first the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, 5-6. We read verse 5 earlier. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's the promise of God. Right, so once you've recognized you then repent of what you need to repent of. You've realigned yourself with the truth of what God has said. Once you've done that, the, fifth, the fourth part of the process, the fourth R, is to rebuke any spirit that might have enabled and empowered the place where you were in sin before the Lord. Right? And so you can stand now on the authority of Jesus and His work on the cross and what He's done for you and the forgiveness that you stand in. And you take authority over the spirit of greed or the love of money. And you say, in Jesus' name, I bind you and I command you to be gone and to cease influencing my life. You have no authority over me anymore. It's that simple and you can do that because of what Jesus has done. Finally, the fifth R in the process is called replacing. And this is about feeding yourself the right stuff. Because the enemy is going to come back. And he's going to try and get you to come back into and buy into this other thing that you need and begin to lose your way into into his, his like stuff and the stuff that He wants you to have. And so we need to feed ourselves on the truth. We need to replace the inputs where we have maybe allowed a source outside of Jesus to feed our desires and begin to feed ourselves on the truth. And so we need to constantly take our thoughts captive. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 10. It's one of the most helpful instructions to me in Scripture. Take our thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ. As you're thinking things, process your thoughts. Say, hold on. Where does this thought come from? Is this a godly thought? Is this a thought that's just coming from me? Or is this actually a sinful thought that might be inspired from the enemy? What does Jesus have to say about it? Let me take this captive. Say, you know what? I could worry in this situation. I could be concerned in this situation. But actually, I recognize whom I believed. I know that God is faithful. I'm going to choose to trust him. Jesus says I can trust him. Jesus says if I seek first the kingdom, he's going to give me all the things that I need. We need to replace the, the bad inputs with good input. 
That's the five R's. Right? And that's basically where we're going to end. I'm just going to, I'm going to invite you to do something a little new and a little different because God has done something in me that has changed the way in which I'm going to interact with Scripture. Because I've read this passage many, many times before. In James chapter 1, you might remember, James speaks about the person who reads the perfect law of God and then doesn't do what it says. He says that man is like a guy that looks at himself in a mirror and then turns away and immediately forgot what he saw. And if any of you have ever looked at the time, you like pulled out your cell phone, checked the time, put it away, and like two seconds later, you're like, what was the time again? Right? James is saying, when you do that to the Scriptures, you waste them. You, you disrespect them. You don't treat them as the Word of God. And so I, I've begun to do this thing. I've, I've created this axiom in my life, which you can put up now there, Tom. It says, if God, then what? If God has said, now what am I going to do about it? And I, I'm doing my best to make sure that wherever I'm encountering what God has said, I'm going to ask myself, if God has said this, what am I going to do about it? If someone's preaching, if God has said, what am I going to do about it? If I'm reading the scripture in my quiet time, if this is what God has said, what am I going to do about it? If we're doing it in life, you get the picture, right? So I want to invite you to do the same thing this morning. If God has been speaking, now what are you going to do? And I'm not going to tell you, I want to give you two minutes. We're just going to be quiet and allow you, at this point, Tom, you can um, trigger the animation. And I'll just put those questions up that I asked earlier on the screen if you want to use those to reflect. Right? But just ask God, God, if you have spoken, what do you want me to do? What is the, the simple thing that I can begin to do to make sure that I'm obedient to what you have said in your word? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a good and wonderful God. Thank you that as we seek you and place you first in our lives, you have promised that you will give to us all the things that we need. Thank you, Lord, that there is an eternity in heaven that is waiting for us that is better by far 
than the life we have now, even though this life is full of your blessing. Thank you, God, that you promise to walk with us in every moment and every situation. And I want to pray for us this morning, Lord, whether we have very little right now or whether we have a lot. Lord, help us to learn to be content. God, conform us into the image of Jesus. Move us away, Lord, from from thinking about me first to thinking about your kingdom. Help us, God, to remember your goodness towards us, Lord, your faithfulness, to remember the greatness and the power and the might of our God and, and yet your intimacy and nearness with us. And God, help us as we go forward, I pray. No matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, Lord, help us to live in contentment. That we would be able to be easily and readily used by you and be a blessing to others. We ask this in the wonderful, the mighty, and the powerful name of our King, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's always a pleasure to be with you. We're going to continue next week with our series that we started earlier in the year called Reimagining Church. So I look forward to being back with you there. Have a wonderful rest of the week. Stick around and pray if you want to do that with us this morning. And uh, we'll catch you again soon. Have a lovely day.